Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Hey everyone, welcome back. Happy Good Friday. This is probably your first Good Friday in a pandemic, right? Uh, I would I would have to say so, yeah. So uh, how are you holding up this week, Luke? I know that we outsourced most of our farewell to Bernie Sanders discussion to Carl Bayer, but with a couple days removed from it, how are you feeling um, emotionally? Not great, obviously. I think as with anything like this, you know, your mind just runs through so many what ifs, you know, like what if or, you know, if only, uh, you know, like if only there had actually been a kind of unified progressive current that had gone behind Bernie, you know, if only Elizabeth Warren had decided to do something differently with her campaign, if only the kind of fringy small P populist figures like, I don't know, Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang had just gone gone in full throated for Bernie all these little things like that, because the the result is such a peculiar one. I mean, the Democratic establishment didn't really want Joe Biden. It spent, you know, a year and a half cycling through, you know, all these people that were in various forms trying to resurrect or kind of slightly revise Obamaism in one way or another. Um, none of them were really able to do the do that. A lot of them just kind of fell flat like lead balloons. Didn't really seem like Biden was going anywhere. You know, after South Carolina, things just really turned in a matter of days. And there was this whole Biden is more electable thing that most of the U.S. media apparatus basically peddled. And, um, you know, we find ourselves where we are now. I mean, I think the other thing that's very frustrating is that Bernie hasn't really been able to campaign for weeks. Uh, You know, and most people, unless they're already tuned in to sort of Bernie media stuff, would not have seen any of his very uh, impressive coronavirus broadcasts. You know, while Joe Biden is talking with the governor of Michigan about the similarities between Fig Newtons and and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which incidentally, we should do a deep dive into Joe Biden's podcast at some point. Imagine, oh man, <laughs> imagine subjecting ourselves to that. Um, but, you know, while Biden was doing that kind of nonsense, uh, when he did indeed appear at all, which which has kind of been uh, not very often, CNN didn't cover that. Neither did MSNBC. So most people didn't see that. Bernie couldn't do traditional get out the vote operations. And unlike Joe Biden did not tell his own voters to go and, uh, you know, cast ballots when it was going to endanger their lives and everybody else's. So it's a gut punch, as you'd expect, but it's it's more of a gut punch, I suppose, because it doesn't feel like there was no finality to this. There was no closure. It was just this kind of sudden disappointment of Super Tuesday. And then after that, yet a series of primaries where various forms of voter suppression were basically employed to get people to vote when it wasn't safe in this pandemic, because the Democratic establishment wanted to wrap these things up and coronate this senile old reactionary who it prefers to the socialists. So uh, there's a lot of just annoyance around that. Um, And I I think also, maybe I'd be saying differently if we were actually experiencing this, but I think if if Bernie Sanders had faced an ideological opponent with any kind of dynamism or any kind of, you know, meaningful, substantive political project and lost, that would have been a little more satisfying or at least a little more tidy. I mean, if I felt like Bernie had taken his message to the Democratic electorate, it had gotten a fair hearing and then it had been defeated by something at least coherent and by a candidate able to finish a sentence who wasn't just sort of running this like, you know, weird zombie campaign, that would have been easier. Um, But instead, we have just the sheer weirdness of this moment that's unfolding now where it doesn't even seem like 
the people who conspired to make Biden the nominee. Like, there's so much uncertainty around him. Um, he's not particularly, doesn't inspire a lot of enthusiasm. It's, uh, it's, it's very strange. So there's a lot swirling around in my head right now. I guess just finally I'll say there is something oddly liberating about it. Um, not, not in a, in a good way, but just... In a Joker-fied way. Well, I mean, somewhat, yeah. I mean, the election, you know, could have been much more consequential. And this kind of high stakes thing that we've been, we've all been thinking about for the last year and a half, I mean, that's basically over now. Of course, there are a lot of stakes with what happens with the pandemic and all of the potentially seismic political shifts that are going on around that, where you have these kind of figures like Josh Hawley, who's a Republican senator, proposing measures that are far more sweeping in response to the crisis than Biden is, et cetera, et cetera. So there's there's a lot of stakes. There's going to be a lot of stuff to think about and, and write about. But I mean, this this contest that really potentially could have transformed American politics, uh, that's over. And you have, I mean, calling this a return to the status quo is almost giving it too much credit. I mean, it's a, it's a violent reversion to, I don't know, something kind of almost beyond the, st- the status quo, um, if that makes any sense. I'll have to think about how to finesse that description a little more. But so if you've been a, if you've been a, a leftist and you've been involved in the Bernie campaign, if you've spent a lot of time thinking about this, if you've been in the trenches on Twitter, if you've been door knocking, whatever, you get to switch a lot of that off now. And it's cold consolation, but it does probably mean that on a day-to-day basis, um, on some level, your sanity vis-a-vis, you know, the primaries and stuff, some of that's going to come back. You said you didn't find it a satisfying outcome, but I do think there's something actually kind of satisfying about the fact that it took a mask off moment for Sanders to be defeated. The party cycles through all of these supposedly progressive candidates, all of these candidates who the hype around them is that these are the candidates who are finally going to take the youth vote away from Bernie, whether it's Beto or Kamala or... Um, that that adorable little mayor uh, who, whose name is escaping me right now. After none of them caught on, the party finally, at the 11th hour, had to rally behind its oldest, most reactionary candidate and had to do it during a pandemic. And as a result, the Democratic Party is now a very tarnished brand. I don't know if it's irreversibly tarnished, but it's very tarnished. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, that's one of the things to watch over the next little while, because I mean, the Democratic brand should have been irreparably tarnished after 2016. I mean, nobody involved in that should ever have been taken seriously again, losing the most unlosable election in modern history to the guy from The Apprentice. That kind of should have done it. Um, and what ha- what's happened over the last four years is that the blame for that defeat, the causes of it have been, you know, cable news has been a big culprit here. They've been outsourced to all these kind of external phenomena, whether it's Russia or Jill Stein voters or non-voters or or whatever, such that there's never really been a reckoning with the causes of that defeat. Now, if this happens again, I mean, you know, obviously one doesn't want to make predictions, but at the, at, in this moment, it's, it's very difficult to see how a candidate as weak as Biden, who's a, a much weaker candidate than Hillary Clinton, it, it's very difficult to see how he's going to defeat Donald Trump. And if and if the Democrats did all this to lose again, one would think and one would hope that that would completely discredit this strand of liberalism, you know, this kind of post-2008 strand of liberalism. But um, but who knows? I'm a little scared of what American politics looks like without Sanders as a sort of center of gravity. 
He is the reason that none of the non-Biden candidates could catch on. He's the one who set the terms of debate. Medicare for all is the issue that it is because of him. It's exciting that our generation, and even more than us, the generation younger than us, is radicalized. But it's scary that these obvious figureheads like Corbyn and Sanders are spent forces now. And I don't know what that means going forward. Does it mean without Sanders as this this spectral presence, this center of gravity, does it mean that Mayor Pete is able to catch on in four years? I very much doubt that. I mean, liberalism is is an exhausted force, and that's going to be the case regardless of whether it's being threatened electorally from the left or not. I think the bigger risk is that after seeing Sanders get completely shafted by the Democratic Party twice, um, I mean, it's going to just be very hard to engage people in any kind of electoral action at all. And of course, electoral politics isn't the only kind of politics, but I think you know, one of the lessons of the Sanders movement, for all the reasons you're just saying, is that it actually does catalyze forces in important ways and um, or, or rather galvanize them. And it provides a, a kind of focus for everyone. And yeah, I'd, I'll be worried about people kind of switching off uh, all of that. But um, I, I have no doubt we're going to have an opportunity to do this again at some point in the future. Uh, you know, Sanders success was the product in many ways. I mean, despite the fact that he is a, a, a rather exceptional figure, his success was the product of all kinds of things that aren't going away. And if, if, any, if anything, are just going to intensify. And so we will have our day. It's just not going to be today. Well, say what you will about Joe Biden's candidacy. The primaries are a chance for members of a party to vet their candidates and consider their faults in advance and pick the best man for the job. A primary from 60 years ago is not too different from one today, and that's what we found out as we revisited Robert Drew's 1960 documentary classic, Primary. This is the best voice that America can have when the people participate in their government and their politics. How are you going to come out of this I say I've been in politics too long to make any predictions that one-third of the precinct's in. Only uh, reckless people do that, and radicals, and I'm a conservative, prudent man. You look awfully satisfied right now, Senator. I'm pleased. I'm pleased. You see, if you're... If somebody uh, relegates you to a, what, what you call a hard bread and cold water diet and you come up with bouillon and biscuits, it seems pretty good. There is a scene in Robert Drew's primary that I still find, 60 years later, genuinely kind of exhilarating. And it's when John F. Kennedy is walking through a crowded convention hall trying to make his way to the stage swarmed with people, and the camera is following him from behind. It's fascinating to watch now because Kennedy has long since passed into the realm of myth, so seeing him this close and immediate is a reminder that he was once a real person. The scene would also have been exhilarating at the time because, of course, Primary was a celebrated breakthrough in documentary filmmaking. Robert Drew and his cinematographers, Richard Leacock and Albert Mazels, pioneered the use of lightweight camera and sound equipment, so for the first time, documentary filmmakers could carry their cameras by hand, and were thus able to move quickly, nimbly, capturing spontaneous moments. Nobody would have seen an image like the one of Kennedy in the convention hall before, and now, when access to political candidates is rigorously managed, it still seems novel. 
The newfound freedom allowed Drew and his collaborators to poke around the 1960 Wisconsin Democratic primary where Kennedy faced Hubert Humphrey. We see the candidates on campaign buses and in hotel rooms and around polling stations, and we see all the work that goes into prepping a politician for a photo shoot. Primary is one of the few films that could be said to have launched a subgenre, in this case the politics what a concept documentary. We've seen a lot of documentaries like this on the podcast, from the highs of D.A. Pennebaker's The War Room to the lows of Alexandra Pelosi's Journeys with George. They all find intrinsic fascination with the unglamorous nuts and bolts work of a political campaign. For the most part, Luke and I fail to share in that fascination. There is nothing exciting to me about the fact that Alexandra Pelosi had to eat a lot of bad ham sandwiches on George W. Bush's tour bus. So I'm wondering, for Luke, given that this movie is the progenitor of one of our least favorite genres, what did you think of it this time around? So um, I've seen this film quite a few times, actually. Um, I, I think I first saw it in first year film studies class, and I was pretty fascinated with it as a piece of filmmaking because, you know, it really is, I think, one of the first documentaries uh, that uses this cinema verite style where there's just there's very little narration. I think there's just two or three moments where there's a kind of voice of God that's like setting the stage for you. And basically, besides that, it's just following Humphrey and Kennedy around and and hearing from ordinary Wisconsinites with no editorializing or or anything like that. So it is a film that I enjoy just as a work unto itself. Um, I think it's a, you know, an interesting watch. I do think its form is the most striking thing about it. And little did they know when they were making this movie that it would be the perfect foil for us to, well, for me anyway, to uh, relitigate some of my beefs with kind of uh, the types of movies in its lineage that, that followed after. And I can expound on that a little bit more uh, down the line. Well, typically when we watch documentaries like this, we often complain that they're spouting this sort of received wisdom that they promise this all-access portrait of these rigorously stage-managed people, but they end up just reciting the same things that we know about and that they want us to know about them. I didn't actually feel any closer to understanding Kennedy or Humphrey as people after watching this. I think they're Mm -hmm. still rather remote figures in it. And I was struck by how it seems to so perfectly encapsulate all of what would become the received wisdom about this political campaign. That, for example, Kennedy was this controversial figure because of his Catholicism, and that Kennedy was this exciting, dynamic candidate, this this handsome guy with a beautiful wife who played very well in the cities. So I look at it, and I'm, I'm uh, actually not sure to what extent to trust it, because it almost seems to so perfectly line up with the popular narrative of this campaign. That's a good point. I would just say that the forum employed here differs, I think, in, in two critical ways from the kind of successor movies we've talked about. And and I think both are kind of to the credit of the film and to this style. So one is that even though this is a sort of breaking the fourth wall movie, you know, like we're going to show you, you know, you're not just going to see the TV broadcast, you're going to see them to the candidate ta- and their advisors talking to the TV people beforehand about what they want to see on the broadcast. Uh, You're going to see the candidate on the bus. You're going to hear from ordinary voters. It is the same as the war room in that respect. But because there's kind of no narration and it's sort of a just casting a very wide net, it's just here are two campaigns. We're just showing you what we got. It is 
much more in keeping with a sort of uh, it's it's trying to aim for a type of realism in a way that something like the War Room or something like uh, I've already forgotten the name of the Alexandra Pelosi movie you just mentioned that would be Journeys with George. Journeys with George. So where it differs from those is that those are much more operating in a kind of uh, subjective voice. I mean, the the war room is about the Clinton campaign and particularly about two apparatchiks, two professional political operatives and how cool they are. And the Pelosi one, you know, takes the form of this almost like memoir style thing, which a lot of uh, a lot of films of different kinds we've watched for the podcast have, have used that style. And and this brings me to, I think, the other key difference, which is that this film doesn't really fetishize political operatives in the way that later films would, you know? Um, mm-hmm. This isn't about how there are these geniuses who are who are operating you know behind the scenes and who have all these machiavellian tactics that they're using that the film is revealing to you and i think that's also to its credit because i mean as we talked about when we watched the war room that fetish is basically bullshit it's fetishizing what is for the most part exceptionally boring maybe tedious and hard but but definitely unglamorous and mostly uninteresting work um that that political operatives do well, all of those documentaries, the subtext of them is this idea that the, these people are somehow kind of desecrating themselves by doing this work. They're proving their worth by doing things that are so beneath them, like eating ham sandwiches and shaking hands with people on the street and sleeping in Motel 6s, and that we are supposed to regard that as noble. I have a passage here that I think really speaks to this. This is from a book. I have a review forthcoming in Jacobin. I've mentioned the book on the podcast before. It's called Hate, Inc., and it's uh, a book by Matt Taibbi. This is from the uh, the beginning of chapter 11, which is about how class inflects reportage in American politics, in the American media. There are a few paragraphs here that really speak to something we've uh, come up against on the show many times before, vis-a-vis uh, how politicians and operatives are presented um, in a lot of the movies we've watched. In fact, Taibbi even names one of my favorite films we've watched for this. When I say favorite, I don't mean it's good. I just mean I enjoyed talking about it. Um, and, that's, and that's Primary Colors. So I just want to read a bit here and then we can, we can discuss. So the, the chapter begins just by talking about how exclusive the journalistic profession has become. For example, noting that 98% of journalists born since 1970 were college educated and less than 10% came from working class backgrounds. And Taibbi notes that this had a really concrete impact on the way political coverage played out and the kinds of narratives that it tended to foreground. He writes, in America, the change came in stages. When journalism became cool after all the president's men, upper class kids suddenly wanted in. Previously, a rich American kid wouldn't have wiped his tuckus with a reporter. Ironically, All the President's Men, which made reporting glamorous, was about adversarial journalism. But the next generation of national politics reporters viewed people in power as cultural soulmates because, at least socially, they were. While sports writers for a while remained hard-scribble, cigar-chewing types who hammered team owners and managers for every tiny mistake, political reporters became professional apologists, constantly telling us how hard it is for politicians to win and run things. By the 1990s and 2000s, the new model for political reporting was found in books like Primary Colors or Game Change, which celebrated politicians and their aides and looked at things from their point of view, 
Leadership was hard. If a candidate had to fib or back off a campaign promise, the new generation of scribes explained a politician's job was to accept the burden of morally ambiguous compromise. Reporters were forever trying to recreate the American Camelot. In each presidential race, any halfway decent-looking young Democrat was described as Kennedy-esque. In 2004, both Democratic candidates, John Kerry and running mate John Edwards, won the moniker. The newspaper's current candidate-to-be is Beto O'Rourke, but that's a little dated already. In the next Camelot, reporters this time around wanted to be counted with the best and the brightest. They wanted, literally, to be courtiers. Um, and Taibbi uh, then recounts stepping onto Obama's campaign plane in, I guess, 2008, and seeing that the media section of the plane was plastered with photos of Obama and of the reporters with Obama, like posing for photos. And he, he says, you know, it looked like, you know, the, the high school yearbook committee at the end of the semester or something, just everybody taking photos. And that is so emblematic of this kind of sycophantic courtship culture that, you know, defines uh, so much of the political media today, but also defines, you know, the what are supposed to be these, you know, morally nuanced films about presidential candidates like Primary Colors, or the films that are sort of aiming for some sort of cinema verite shtick like uh, The War Room or something like that. It's taken for granted that these people are interesting and that they, you know, have this tremendous burden uh, that's placed upon them. And that because they're powerful figures, it's not really up to us, the peons, to have anything critical to say about them or to even really be curious or at all cynical about anything they say or do. And I would just say in the defense of a film like Primary, well, you know, it's very limited. I think you're right. It doesn't really tell you that much about it is aiming for a type of an objectivity, a very limited one, but, you know, a type of objectivity nonetheless. And in, in, in this way, it actually mirrors the way that political news coverage used to work around the time this film was made. I think we've talked about this on the show before, and you know, this is something else Taibbi talks about in his book. Political coverage used to take the form of stuff like uh, what you see in primary. You know, it used to have this kind of catch-all objective voice because the business model of the media was really just to capture as many viewers as possible. So you don't want to alienate anyone. You know, you just want to bring in as many people as possible. And that means treating political coverage kind of almost like the weather, like it's, it's kind of a pedestrian. That film we watched, Best of Enemies, about the Gore Vidal-William F. Buckley feud, you know, which is an enjoyable film, it very much lionizes, you know, what kind of preceded the partisan media of the present, where the media is very shouty and it's basically divided along party lines. But what a lot of people don't realize is that what it was celebrating is, you know, something like what you see in primary. I mean, the cable news equivalent of what you see in primary, which is just political coverage is very, you know, it's very bland. It's non-ideological in a way. It's, it's ideological only insofar as, you know, there are editorial decisions about what you see and what you don't, but it's coming to you in this very dull and inoffensive voice. And that kind of had its problems uh, too. What you were saying reminded me of another movie that we watched on the podcast. Uh, I realize we're bringing up everything we've ever seen now. The show, just like, uh, you know, modern cinema is postmodern <laughs> now. We just consist of self-reference. You remember that Errol Morris film about Donald Rumsfeld, The Unknown Known? Oh, God. I mean, that was a very hard movie to watch because... Like, it's a movie that I feel like is about 60% close to getting it, 
where it depicts him as this totally empty vacuum of a man, but it does it in this style that's so kind of ponderous. You know, all those pictures of... The memos fluttering around. (laughs) Yeah, you know, how terrible it was that this man infiltrated these weighty institutions. And I definitely think the journalists still fetishize the notion of holding truth to power. I know that from having been a journalism student myself, but also that a lot of people get into journalism because it gives them access to these glamorous and exclusive spaces. I don't think most people who get into journalism would say that's why they're getting into journalism. But also, we know that most journalists love going to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. They write about things that they find interesting and glamorous. Let, let's talk about this for, for a second. Because, um, I, I mean, we've both had experiences, you know, I mean, we've both worked in journalism. And it is interesting, you know, the culture that that you kind of see in it. And obviously, we're, we're generalizing here. Of course, there are lots of journalists who do speak truth to power and, and who do good work. But there is a fetishization of the whole enterprise of journalism that is everywhere if you're in any kind of space, you know, whether it's uh, student newspapers, which is where Will and I started, or I mean, Will went, Will actually went to J school, which I uh, didn't. So, you know, you'd be able to speak to this probably more than I can. But all of that is, I think it's safe to say, in an uneasy relationship with one of the other reasons why people get into journalism, which is that because it has a reputation as being this great estate of democracy, um, and because it so often, political journalism in particular, it has these foundational myths that are actually much more exceptions than they are the rule, like all the president's men, people are often attracted to it because they want to feel important. One of the ways you can feel important is by brushing shoulders with powerful people. It's why so many of the most insufferable, like blue checkmark accounts will just have an avatar that's like the one time the person appeared on TV or something like that. It's like, look at me, I'm part of the I'm part of the discourse. Uh, I, I got to ask that US Senator a question or, you know, they, they noticed me or, you know, something like that. And then, yeah, of course, they go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner and it's all a big love-in. Well, the subtext of a lot of these political documentaries we watch is that these spaces, which are so mundane, like campaign buses and hotel rooms and convention halls, have actually been touched by greatness. There's been this process of transubstantiation because a great man like uh, Kennedy or George W. Bush happened to walk through there. And so like you've got to watch them with your with your bizarro world they live glasses to, to be able to look at them and see, no, this this is a special space. Something I've sometimes wondered about that. I mean, it, it it's not a it's not a holistic explanation. I think the actual explanation, as we're hinting at, is far more cynical. But in it, there's another Taibbi book uh, that I'd really recommend to people called Spanking the Donkey. That is about uh, you know it's a kind of 2004 campaign memoir. And uh, what's so interesting about it is that you're expecting a straightforward campaign memoir. And what you find is that Taibbi was so blindsided by the banality of what he was being asked to do. All he could do was write like a meta commentary on the process through which campaigns are covered. And he was free, unlike the other people on, you know, for a while he was on the Howard Dean plane, for example. He was free to ruminate on things a lot more because he had uh, fewer deadlines. So uh, the other people on the plane, I mean, some of them, he he notes, were having to like file three or four pieces a day. And when you have to file that much, I mean, what are you going to do? Of course, you're going to write some boring bullshit. You're going to the campaign's going to put a pre- put out a press release and you're basically going to write an executive summary of it and you're going to call it news. And nobody who do, does work that's that boring wants to feel like they're engaged in some workmanlike process that's very pedestrian and isn't really about 
speaking truth to power or informing people about anything useful. So, of course, you know, it's a lot easier to be like, actually, this is all part of this grand, noble thing. And it's so many of the people that do that kind of work, just the most boring, soul-crushing stuff imaginable, they end up writing these books of kind of non-reportage where they actually really do think of this process as noble. And they think of elections as these almost kind of religious events Mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, the country is holding this sort of giant symposium and, and, you know, it's it's this battle of ideas and... And they have a role to play in it. You know, they're on the checkerboard. (laughs) The wheels of history are turning. (laughs) We're getting a little bit away from the film here, but I feel like there's a rich vein of material in your own experience at at J School. You know, and I'm I'm curious what the culture of journalism that you encountered felt like there. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a great experience at J School. I think the main reason why it was so great was because it wasn't simply about those elite spaces. You know, they had us going all over New York, finding stories, infiltrating strange areas that we otherwise wouldn't have had access to or wouldn't even have thought to have access to. But I would definitely think in terms of culture, in terms of the ideology, at least at least of where I was, certainly journalists still fetishize the notion of holding truth to power. But contradictorily, they also fetishize the idea of being rigorously objective and non-ideological not letting their personal biases infiltrate what they do. And obviously that's unreconcilable. Yeah, I mean, one of the consequences in my experience, you know, I've encountered that too, and one of the consequences of, of you know, I'm not going to let my personal whatever interfere with stuff. I mean, you have to found your ideas on, on something. You have to found your reporting, your writing, whatever it is on something. And when you say, I'm not going to let my personal feelings about X, Y, or Z intrude, I mean, most often the move is you just fall back on received wisdom. And then that's what objectivity is, which is the opposite of holding truth to power. I would say that at my J school, we all pretty much liked Obama. You know, that's uh, where, where the culture was at. And certainly that would influence perhaps subconsciously, perhaps not, what we would have regarded as serious ideas and worthwhile ideas and good stories and good people to cover. Senator Kennedy is headed for a two-to-one victory, but this is short of the margin he needs to get his bandwagon rolling. Neither man has been knocked out. And in national standing, they remain about where they stood before the primary. So let's let's turn back to the film because there's there's we've talked a lot about the form, but I think there are some things to be said about the content of the film. This is kind of stuff that we can read into the film retroactively because, of course, it's not it wasn't known to the people who made it when they were making it. But the film is a is a document of several things that I think are are worth noting here. I mean, so the first is that it is a, an interesting document of how campaigns used to be. They really were very different. I mean, don't forget, this is 1960. So the first ever televised presidential debate hasn't even happened yet. The cliche that all politics are local used to be literally true. You know, one thing you see throughout the film is the candidates just reminding people who they are over and over again. And and the news broadcasts reminding you, you know, uh, John F. Kennedy, the senator from Massachusetts, Hubert Humphrey, the senator from Minnesota, This would have been the first time that a lot of Wisconsinites had really kind of gotten up close to either of the candidates or really gotten a sense of who they were at all. 
it would have been the first time Wisconsin media had really had a chance to cover it. And, you know, you wouldn't have just had a few big media organizations. You didn't have wire services, you know, where basically one reporter goes and writes a, a press release and then that becomes stock material that reporters who aren't even in the state are then using to do write-ups. This was a much different era for uh, for journalism. And it was also a much different era for political campaigns. I mean, you did literally have to go you know, into the union halls. You had to meet with the farmers. So one of my favorite scenes is Hubert Humphrey talking to the farmers. And this is kind of what prevailed. I mean, it's not that big political rallies hadn't been invented yet, but I don't think they were the norm in the same way that they are now, where now you have rallies that in large part are designed to be televised events. This was something that when I was first getting interested in politics and first kind of getting involved in it, um, I didn't really realize, uh, you know, you, you think of a rally as something where if, if you're a spectator, you know, you're kind of the focus of the rally or, or the, the purpose of the rally is for you to be there and show your support. And if you go to one of these things, actually, you know, the fourth wall uh, is sort of broken immediately. I have a particular memory from 2008. It was the Canadian federal election and I just started university and I went to an NDP rally with Jack Layton and Ed Broadbent uh, in downtown Toronto. And it was the first time I think I'd ever really been to certainly a a rally of, of this kind during an election. And when you're actually in the room, you know, all the people that you see on, uh, you know, if the rally was on TV, you know, they've all been strategically placed behind the the camera and stuff. Often you have fewer people actually in front of the stage, like watching the events play out. You know, you're given signs in advance when you come in because that's just how these things work. You know, as a televised event, you're a political party, you got one message that you can deliver to people. You want the same message and all the signs. Little things like that, uh, that's what you notice. And that isn't how the rallies, you know, such as you see them in in primary uh, really work. Although it is striking that, I mean, Kennedy is, you know, he's doing these events that are just kind of full of buzz and at least for the people in the room really are spectacles. I mean, uh, when you see Humphrey, it really does seem like he's trying to persuade people with kind of political arguments a bit more. And Kennedy, he's just this kind of walking cavalcade of buzz. And I think that presages what campaigns would become after this and and what they especially are to kind of modern American liberals, where they are very personality based kind of things. And they are kind of a an exciting spectacle in which you're invited to participate. I mean, uh, Kennedy's speeches in this film, um, there's a rally maybe two thirds into the movie. And it's like, if you actually listen to what he's saying, I mean, it's kind of beautifully said, but it's completely meaningless. You know, it's just like, uh, you know, I have strong ideas about the future of America. In this, in these trying times for freedom, we will stand, and I have no doubt that our convictions will prevail, or whatever. You know, and it's all just empty platitudes like that. But it's very exciting, and it looks great on TV. Um, and that's eventually where politics would head. But I think in this film, they're not really quite there yet. So that makes it an interesting document too. I could see a reading of this movie being about how JFK was this young and exciting figure who brought this blast of youth energy. You know, the scenes where we see him, it looks like Beatlemania with all these young women surrounding him trying to get his autograph. Whereas Humphrey is an older man running a more conservative campaign in more conservative areas. Uh, that would be a certain kind of liberals self-flattering read of it that that's the that's the time magazine reading of this do you think that that's the message the movie's trying to communicate you know it's really hard to know and actually that is almost a it's almost a metaphysical question in relation like how do you interpret a movie like this because 
I feel like that interpretation would come so much out of the, the Kennedy myth that subsequently developed. But since a film like this is, of course, bound up in the creation of that myth, it's it's hard to, I mean, where it's like a almost a chicken and the egg uh, problem. Like, where, where does this originate? It's strange to watch, actually, because it reminded me of Young Mr. Lincoln, which is a movie where, you know, Abraham Lincoln, played by Henry Fonda, shows up, and from the minute he's on screen, it's like, well, this man is destined for greatness. The filmmakers know that. We in the audience know that. It's It imbues every scene. And I get a lot of that same feeling watching this movie whenever Kennedy shows up. Because he's this iconic figure, he shows up and you think, well, obviously this is the guy who's going to win. I'm not sure to what extent that that was present at the time of the film's making, but I can't imagine this movie not having that kind of charge to it whenever Kennedy's on screen. In fact, I was reminded of another Cinema Verte movie, um, a D.A. Pennebaker film, Don't Look Back, where whenever Bob Dylan is on screen, you think of Don't Look Back as one of these iconic 60s movies, but everybody in that movie looks like they're from the 1950s, except Bob Dylan, who in the center of it is this kind of timeless and eternal figure. That's one of my favorite films, and we'll we'll absolutely have to do it at some point. I would honestly just love to do an episode on, like, you know, every year of Dylan from like 1962 up until like 1980. Honestly, on just every single Dylan album, we could do a separate episode, but we could start with the film. I should add that uh, I knew Bob Dylan and President Kennedy, you were no Bob Dylan. (laughs) So just further to, uh, you know, this question you're pondering before about, you know, is the sort of Time Magazine reading of this movie, is that intentionally what it's doing? What a film like this intends to do is almost kind of irrelevant because it is just documenting events that actually happened. And so whether the film means to or not, it's documenting, um, you know, the transition of the New Deal Democratic Party into, you know, what came after it. And I mean, I think that's worth discussing here, too. Um, We see two very different styles of democratic politics playing out here. And of course, uh, you know, because the Kennedy myth is still one of the kind of totemic myths of American liberalism, it seems like Kennedy's triumph in all of this uh, was inevitable and that, you know, we're just seeing something that is the passing of the old and decrepit into the new and with it and hip and exciting, etc. And for that reason, you know, it's very easy to read Kennedy as the protagonist of the film. But I find Hubert Humphrey to be a much more sympathetic figure. And I think any leftist watching this movie should find the same. And I want to explain that because Hubert Humphrey, you know, is not a, you know, great titan of the left or anything like that. Hubert Humphrey was a a thoroughly sort of banal, run-of-the-mill Democratic politician. He was vice president after Kennedy's assassination. He was the presidential nominee in 1968, and he lost to Richard Nixon. He was the product of his era, and it was a very different era um, of Democratic Party politics. Um, And I actually had something here from Matt Karp, who's a colleague of mine at Jacobin Magazine, This is an excerpt from a great piece he wrote last fall called Is This the Future Liberals Want? I might have actually read from this before. I just want to put into context the party system uh, at the time this film was made and kind of how it played out. And then I want to talk about where to situate a guy like Humphrey in all this. 
So Matt Carp writes, even in the United States where racism and the two-party system have always sapped working class solidarity, politics in the mid 20th century was polarized firmly along class lines. From the 1930s to the 1960s, if you were a working class voter, a mail carrier in Harlem, a miner in West Virginia, a farm laborer in New Mexico, a garment worker in Cleveland, you were very likely to vote Democrat. If you were a manager or professional outside the solid South from Vermont to California, you were very likely to vote Republican. At its peak in the era of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, class voting was nearly as robust in the United States as anywhere in the industrialized world. Across the 20th century, it was this politics of class that structured the great and lasting achievements of European social democracy from Britain's National Health Service to the Scandinavian welfare state. In the United States, class voting produced the political coalitions that delivered the New Deal and the Civil Rights Act. Here, as elsewhere, the decisive energy for reform came about through working class organization, chiefly in labor and social movements. But a key ingredient in the mix was a partisan alignment that allowed, and in some ways even encouraged, the success of class-based demands for economic redistribution and democratic equality. Unexceptional New Deal Democrats like Hubert Humphrey pushed by organized labor and confident in the knowledge that they spoke as clear representatives of the working people, could denounce scabs and defend vigorous labor laws while calling for national health insurance, an end to Jim Crow, unprecedented mass transit and elder care projects, and quote, a stabilized economy of full employment. There is no need to romanticize such mid-century Democrats who also presided over the expansion of the security state and the murderous war in Vietnam. Yet neither can we afford to dismiss the victories in this era of class voting which dwarf anything either Democrats or American leftists have won in the past 50 years. The Democratic Party was never truly a workers' party, but its major achievements of the 20th century were possible only because it was a party of workers. So... This is something we dealt with when we talked about the film uh, about the Harold Wilson-Edward Heath duel. And that is fairly unexceptional or, you know, not particularly ambitious politicians who nevertheless reflected an era where the working class was just so much more powerful than it is now. So defaulted to a much different set of ideological commitments and policy commitments than they do now. Your average Democratic politician now, whatever their pretense that they they represent, you know, uh, people of color or, uh, you know, marginalized groups and that that's who they defer to. I mean, the average Democrat now defaults to the values and the ideology and the language of coastal professionals, um, because that is the class component of the Democratic coalition that's now hegemonic. It didn't always used to be that way, such that, you know, you watch a film like Primary made in 1960 and Hubert Humphrey, you know, is going into, you know, a room full of farmers and he's blasting the elites at Life magazine and the New York Times who don't understand and don't care about the grain prices and and things like that. And he's saying, look, I, I've cast votes that have made me really unpopular with those people, but I don't care because I represent you. That is a, a working class populism and farmers were much more likely to be working class in those days. Um, you know, the family farm hadn't largely disappeared at that point. And a guy like Humphrey, who is pretty much just a typical Democratic machine politician, really, nevertheless, all of his language, all of his political posturing, it spoke to these people and it, uh, at least to some degree, tried to reflect their interests just because of the, the, the pressures it was under. And I think that makes Humphrey the much more sympathetic figure in the film, because if you compare his rallies, his events to the ones Kennedy has, I mean, Kennedy is just doing a version of what, you know, Democrats do now, which is that they get up and they do this kind of Sorkin-esque 
bullshit about the greatness of America and how, you know, freedom, freedom is always tested and we will always prevail, et cetera, et cetera. And that is the language of Time Magazine and Life Magazine and, and NPR liberalism or whatever. You know, it's florid and it's evocative, but it doesn't really mean very much. And it just evokes these kind of broad signifiers of unity in a way that actively erases the the meaningful material differences and the conflicts between different forces and people in the country. Well, given that this has been going on in Democratic primaries for 60 years, you can understand why the media was so shocked that Pete Buttigieg, for <laughs> some reason, didn't catch on this time. We're recording this on Easter weekend. Uh, as mentioned off the top, it's Easter and a pandemic. Typically, I would probably see my family at this time, although it will likely happen this year only through a computer screen. Uh, what is your relationship with the Easter holiday, if any? Uh, I mean, this is one of the, the major cultural differences between us. I mean, I don't, I don't really celebrate <laughs> Easter. Uh, I mean, what about what about? The Easter Bunny, didn't you have that when you were a kid? Didn't you hunt for eggs? Absolutely, but, um, you know, I, I hunted for eggs in a thoroughly secular way. Uh, let's put it that way. The Easter Bunny was is just about chocolate to me and that's always that's all that's all he's ever been you mean you didn't read the book of matthew about the time that jesus using his powers turned a bunny into a larger bunny who distributed chocolate chocolate <laughs> eggs <laughs> happy easter everyone President, happy birthday.